Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. It's good to have you with us tonight as we learn more about the translation program at the UI, as well as new initiatives aimed at expanding global literacy throughout our state. Our first two guests have been the driving force behind the creation of a new University of Iowa Center for Translation and Global Literacy. Aaron Aji is the Director of Translation Programs at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Aaron, for being here. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And Pamela Wesley is Associate Dean and Professor in the College of Education here at the University of Iowa. Thanks, Pam. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So it's a pleasure to meet you, Aaron. I know we've had a lot of email communication, yes. but this is the first time in person. Um, we'd love to spend some time talking about the gift translators give to readers when they open our eyes through literature or language to cultures and experiences that are outside our own. And a former professor here at the UI who now teaches at Indiana, a guy I know you know very well, Russell Valentino, recently described the work of a translator in this way. Translators need to be able to write like the best fiction writers, poets, dramatists, and literary nonfiction writers in the receiving culture, all while making sure they never lose sight of or stop listening to their source. All this means that they need to cultivate habits of reading, research, and writing that put them in their own category, one that spans the creative and scholarly worlds. Does that sound right to you? Well, yes, very much so, very much so. Um, Russell, is, as you said, is a very, very dear friend and colleague. And uh, we have worked together in various capacities. He was the president of American Literary Translators Association when I was his vice president. And uh, of course, he was here when, uh, when I started uh, working with the translation program here. Uh, he, he definitely um, uh, gets it perfectly right. The, it's a little bit like bridge building, as, mm -hmm. as uh, the metaphor goes, but it is a little bit more than that, in that um, it's about not only understanding how the bridge is built, the materials of this bridge, how do we build this bridge, but also the lands that we are bridging, right? Uh, both the uh, source languages, we call it, or the source culture, and then the target culture where we are hoping that these original texts written in other languages and in other cultures will land uh, in the hands of unsuspecting readers. So it's, it's, it's quite involved. And indeed, um, our program um, is, uh, is a proud heir to an incredible beginning uh, that was uh, made possible by a duo here, Danny Weisbord, who was a British poet and translator, and of course, Gayatri Spivak, uh, one of the most important translation theorists who was the chair of the complete program here. So our program began as, in fact, as if um, as a bridge between theory and practice. And we have kept to that all the way to this day. Mm -hmm. yeah. When did translation, when was this uh, first um, um, germinating yeah. here at Iowa? Well, so translation is a very long history at Iowa. We were the first university to offer a translation workshop. In fact, uh, uh, in January, we will begin celebrating our 60th anniversary oh. of the IW, uh, ITW. <laughs> 
<laughs> Iowa Translation Workshop. Of course, this was made possible because of this incredible program we have here, which is the International Writing Program. Um, the first translation workshop was, in fact, uh, a, a, a grassroots gathering of creative writing students in the Writers' Workshop, and Paul Engel, who was, uh, in fact, very interested in getting the writing of the international writers visiting to be translated. So um, Edmund Kelly was invited to offer the very first workshop. His experience must have been great, so he went on to, in fact, starting a translation program inside a creative writing workshop. And then about 10 years later, we started our MFA program, which in fact, as a result, a year from now, will be celebrating its 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So it's a very long history. Um, and we've always worked with the writing community here. There is something magical about Iowa City. I always say, this is the place, uh, this is the epicenter of creative writing. You know, nowhere else in this country there is this concentration, this much density of emerging writers. And uh, this is an incredible place for translators also to get a fantastic education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, help us understand what uh, an aspiring translator needs to be studying in order to go into this field. I mean, obviously other languages, there needs to be a familiarity with at least one other language. Absolutely. Um, um, at least advanced uh, proficiency in another language is, is uh, fundamental. But also fundamental is a deep understanding of how literature is shaped. We ask questions, uh, we, we ask how questions. How language conveys meaning, how sound conveys meaning, how style conveys meaning. Um, and so, for that reason, our students have to have a very deep understanding of the workings of a literary text. And in fact, one of the great things about Iowa City is our program is open to MFA students from other writing arts. So they are actually working together with poets in the making and fiction writers in the making, playwrights in the making, and they are actually seeing the text almost like from inside. And in fact, uh, no offense, but many of our, <laughs> to other programs, but many of our students coming from the other MFA programs think that our attention to language and how it works uh, is unparalleled. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's, it's, it's really um, a very deep reading and deep creativity that we are trying to sort of understand. And the, the mention in our earlier quote of scholarly work, that really comes down to researching. Uh, if, if a writer who's being translated lived 100 years ago, uh, obviously in some other historical setting, some other land, don't you have to know something about that as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, not only for writers who, are, who, who lived 100 years ago and have, are maybe... Um, now past, <laughs> but even uh, when translating brand new writers, you know, something that is not sufficiently understood is that about 90% of the, 
of the international literature get, that gets translated and published in the United States are promoted by translators. Um, the publishers hear about these authors mainly from us, especially from the countries whose languages are less frequently taught, and that, in fact, is a very growing list. As you know, unfortunately, in the United States, we don't value language education as much as we should. So as a result, a translator has to become a curator, if you will. They have to actually persuade a publisher about why this author is so important in his or her own culture, but also what this author would contribute to the receiving culture. So there is a lot of research that goes into putting together, um, a, you know, putting together a, a pitch, as we call it, right? But translating itself is also sort of um, deciphering these intertextual links. No one writes in isolation, right? Every text is, in fact, an iteration of many, many texts that have come either before or right around that very text that we are trying to translate. So oftentimes, our students have to um, delve deeply into movements um, and uh, literary circles, um, literally lineages, uh, to understand where this one text, mm -hmm. in fact, is located in that network of meaning, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of research and scholarship goes in well, I do want to get Pam into the conversation here, too, a little bit. Um, but before I go to Pam, I thought I might just ask you about this term, global literacy, which we've used Boy. in our, in our <laughs> title. But, um, but translation, I think most of us are, are, are uh, able to kind of at least generally figure out. But what is implied by global literacy? Well, <laughs> this is the great question, because global literacy as a term is actually about 25, 30 years old in the academic sort of pedagogy circles. But it somehow never took. And so on a dare, we decided to put it on our center's <laughs> name, maybe foolishly. We don't know. We will see. So global literacy is, in fact, about all the skills and dispositions that an individual should develop in order to function creatively, productively, and collaboratively inside a global setting. You know, one thing that I always say is that approximately 95% of what we learn about the world comes to us through translation. And um, so as a result, global literacy is first and foremost about language learning. You know, world languages are fundamental to global literacy, but also intercultural communication, intercultural understanding, that in fact language is a reserve of living culture. Mm -hmm. So when, when, when we are, you know, my accent gives it away. I am not a native speaker of this country. So I'm actually speaking to you as though inside a straitjacket. Yeah. I mean, I've been wearing it for 40 years, mm -hmm. so I'm a little comfortable in it. But this is not my language. And the same happens when we say everyone should speak English. Mm 
whereas the real um, human communication occurs, the real intercultural connections occur when we actually welcome other languages into our midst. So that is, in fact, the work of global literacy. We have, a, a, I think later on, uh, you will hear from our colleagues, um, we have a project now we're working on to uh, help understand and help uh, what we call the invisible islands, people whose first language is not English, and yet how do we make our communities more welcoming uh, for them to also thrive in them? Yeah. Um, well, that gives me an opportunity to throw it over to you, Pam. You and Aaron were working together, your co-PIs, on this wonderful grant that was received to create a national resource center here for translation and global literacy at the University of Iowa. No small feat. Congratulations to you and everybody who worked on it. But um, you're in the College of Education, and... Um, I think I'd just like to, to have you explain to us a little bit about what the College of Education can offer in terms of language resources and the kinds of um, interactive opportunities you have with schools around the state. Yeah, so we are, and our role in, in the center is really um, focusing on outreach. Mm -hmm. And um, we're working with, with, to talk about within schools, we're working with sort of two ma major groups. One is teachers and one is students. So in working with teachers, we're going to be doing some workshops for uh, language teachers, focusing on world language teachers, including bilingual teachers in bilingual contexts, as well as teachers of heritage st uh, students, so students who have a significant exposure to the language in the home, um, to the language of study that's not English. Um, and so in those workshops, we're going to be working with this concept of translation. And, and global literacy as well, but I think translation has often had an uh, sort of a, an odd positioning with um, in, in uh, language education. I think that sometimes it is seen as uh, synonymous with what we call the grammar, tra grammar translation, which is sort of comes from studying ancient languages, Latin and Greek, mm -hmm. where you're literally translating one text to the other and not having any sort of um, other interaction with the language. And that, you know, is in, in sort of our modern conceptualizations of language education, we're focusing a lot more on communication, we're focusing on speaking and, and um, listening, as well as reading and writing. And so I think some teachers think, well, translation, that's not what I want to do. But a lot of texts, a lot of uh, texts are used widely in the classroom, in the language classroom, and they are um, what one of the sources that we're that we're looking at. Some of the scholarship says, you know, teachers do use translation all the time in the language classroom. They use it under the table. They're just using it in a way that they're not really acknowledging to themselves that they're using it a lot. But it's always in the classroom, and so we're going to be working um, as part of our outreach, as part of the College of Education's role. We'll be working with teachers to sort of have them recognize what they already do with translation, and then to enhance it and to see what can we bring from this rich tradition of translation as a way of engaging with meaning in a language. How can we help teachers see both what they already do, right? So not just, oh, you 
this is a totally a new thing, but also how do you, what do you do now? And then also how can we make it, um, how can we enhance it and how can we bring in some of these really important themes? So that's one group that we're working with in the schools. Um, and that's gonna be some workshops that we're actually gonna be starting in this spring. Um, and then we're also gonna, going to be working with students who are multilingual. And this is a really exciting project that I'm going to be working with. Um, actually, I think Belen, um, who's going to be one of our speakers in a little bit, is going to uh, be the lead on this. But I'm going to be uh, working with multilingual students in schools because sometimes multilingual students non-English language, what we might call their first language, is devalued. They're seen as sort of empty vessels. They're, we use what we call sort of the deficit model of um, that, that students don't have English and they need English. Mm -hmm. And bringing translation to these students can help validate their first languages or their other first, their multiple first and second languages that aren't English, and having them see both how that those can be creative sources, but also sources for perhaps careers and other mm. ways forward in their lives and sort of helping them recognize um, that all of their linguistic knowledge and all of their linguistic repertoires are important to them. So that's another aspect of this that we're very excited to bring um, to the schools and the community is helping with helping those students um, and working with those students in that way. So those are some of the outreach things that we're bringing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. What Erin um, earlier mentioned that there are many um, uh, languages that are, are not uh, taught in our schools mm -hmm. and so on. We might imagine that there's a, a, a fair number of Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. uh, students, students that have a Spanish background uh, in language mm -hmm. in their homes. Um, but there are also lots and lots and other of mm -hmm. other languages mm -hmm. that have very minority populations in Iowa, yeah. but it's still a family. There are about... Um, 60 languages spoken, heritage languages present in the Iowa City and Coralville yeah. School District. Really, really. Yeah, so how, how does a teacher handle that? Uh, a teacher might feel somewhat... Pam. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I mean, that is always a challenge, and I, there are teachers who work hard, so w w English language uh, teachers um, who work with English language learners, um, may teach a class that has a very wide variety of uh, students with a wide variety of linguistic backgrounds. And you know there are a lot of techniques to, and obviously the teacher does not speak all of those languages. Sure. Um, so there are ways that those languages can be incorporated into instruction. One way that is probably the most basic, but also not, also should, should can and should be encouraged is Acknowledging that there are other languages in the classroom, yeah. bringing them into the discussion, asking students, what are some other words for this? What are some other ways that we can work with these words? What is the word for this in your, how do you write this in your language? And, and having them bring that into the classroom so it's not a, this is an English only zone, but rather mm -hmm. acknowledging and sort of lifting up other languages that might exist. Yeah, the teacher may not speak it, but that's okay. It's okay to decenter the teacher's knowledge in the classroom. And so that's definitely something that a lot of the wonderful English language instructors in our schools do is, you know, acknowledge and bring that, bring those linguistic repertoires into the classroom, but, but then also, you know, build on that to help make connections with other languages and make connections with English as well. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> we speak different languages, but we all are trying to make the same meaning intelligible in these different languages. So when teaching a language, 
to turn to a person who is much more fluent in another language and to ask them, how do you make this meaning in your language? What are the metaphors you use to talk about sadness? Mm -hmm. To sort of bring them into a position, uh, into the conversation about understanding the new language they are ac acquiring from a position of strength rather than inadequacy. Mm -hmm. It's very, very important. Yeah, and just to say, I think that's a great example of some of what translation and a, a translation pedagogy can bring because I was talking about translation, translating individual words. You're talking about translating you know, metaphors and other concepts and those are things that, that aren't always necessarily the first things that leap to mind for someone who's maybe more focused on individual word vocabulary. So I think that's what we're sort of hoping to do is sort of invite some of these other creative ways of thinking about what is expressed in language and how do we bridge different languages with that framework. And I think that's a really exciting part of this project and this center. Right, well, well now this work between the College of Education and the translation workshop or the translation program, um, I take it this must be relatively new. You've had the MFA program for a long time, and now there's a new BA program, which is terrific. But have you been involved with K-12 education in prior times? I personally have not. Mm -hmm. And that's also why um, I reached out to Pam. Um, this is really a very crucial thing we have to do. Um, you know. Oftentimes, the university education is seen as the last place to remedy everything that people need to know about mm -hmm. life. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yet, a lot of work can be done, in fact, in earlier years. And in fact, there are studies that indicate that uh, before um, certain age, people are a lot more amenable to you know, engaging multiple perspectives mm -hmm. in every aspect of their lives, not just language. So uh, I thought that this would be a, 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 a crucial, crucial dimension of global literacy. We want learned users of world cultures. So that has to be done um, across the curriculum, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, we have so many interesting guests coming up that I know we'll, we'll touch on many more elements of this, but, but just as a reflection as a student going through school myself, you know, being in high school or in college, and you're told to go get this book, go to the bookstore, get this book, and make sure it's the translation by so-and-so. Mm -hmm. and, and I can remember thinking, well... What difference does it make? That one, that's a translation from 50 years ago. There was a new one put out last year. How, how much I know now at this point in my life that it makes a great difference and that there are interpretations that happen over time that may shed a new light on a, on a piece that was, you know, um, considered well translated earlier. Um, this is the exciting thing about translation, I suspect, right? There's always something more to see. Yes, we are still translating Homer. And in fact, we're still translating the Bible <laughs> and retranslating. I always tell this to our students at any given Sunday morning or Saturday evening, depending on your Christian denomination. Um, there are about 14 different Bibles being used in the congregations. And so this is, this is the, 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 almost like the secret 
the secret that has to be put out in the open and what translation does. I know that you work with our dear colleague, Anna Barker, quite mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, she will argue about certain translations being better than the other, and I think she's perfectly correct in her own preferences. But just think about this. Most of the, lang most of the languages from which we want text to be translated depend on a very small cadre of translators. In fact, a large number of small languages, as we call them, or minor languages, depend on bilingual translators like myself because we don't teach these languages in an Anglo-American context. So it's actually a miracle that a first translation even comes out. Um, so I would say to you that no translation is bad. So read them with feeling reassured. Now, there will be better ones, I hope, mm -hmm. but you will still enjoy it. <laughs> wow. Well, gosh, thank you so much, Pamela Wesley and Aaron Anji, for starting us off this well, thank afternoon. Thank you. Thank uh, you very much. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Please give our guests a hand. Okay, I guess we're all set. Thank you, everybody, for being here. In this part of World Canvas, we'll drill down a little bit to learn more about specific translation programs and initiatives here at the University of Iowa. I'm pleased to introduce Claire Francis, the director of the Center for Language and Culture Learning at the University of Iowa, just next to me here. Thanks, Claire. Thank you, Joan. Mm -hmm. Jan Stein is at the far end of our group here. He's the director of the MFA in Literary Translation at the University of Iowa. Pleasure to have you, Jan. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to Jan is Adrian Rose, the director of the BA in Translation at the UI. Hi, Adrian. <laughs> and our uh, final guest is Irene Lottini, who's a lecturer in the Department of French and Italian here at the university. So pleasure to have you all here. Thank Thanks, Irene. Um, Claire, may I start with you? Tell us about the Center for Language and Culture Learning within the Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. Sure. The Center <laughs> for Language and Culture Learning is um, first and foremost, a space where students can gather and study uh, throughout the day, and there are uh, plenty of rooms and computers for them to do the work they have to do. Um, it is also a place where they can engage with peer tutors to, um, to enhance their learning, and we offer workshops for faculty as well, and, and a range of student engagement activities. But in the context of translation, I am also working with two graduate students on a project we call Iowa Intersections which is a multilingual uh, community-based storytelling initiative in which we work with um, immigrants in the community to, to in, encourage them to tell us their story in their language, and then we translate, transcribe, and create short documentaries, basically, about these stories. Oh, how exciting. Uh, so tell us something about the individuals you've worked with in that project. Well, I think the most, um, we worked initially last year, we worked with Kirkwood Community College ESL um, program and collected about 30 stories with, uh, it's, it's also a collaboration with UNESCO City of Literature and so there's a, an intern from the uh, translation program who is dedicated to the UNESCO uh, City of Literature organization and together we collaborated on working with Kirkwood Community College to collect these stories. 
and we hired a student from Cinematic Arts to do the filming and you know, we worked on the translation. It was very bare bones, <laughs> um, by the seat of our pants kind of initiative. This year I have two wonderful graduate students working with me, one of whom is in the room, <laughs> and, and I really uh, love the most recent initiative that we took, um, which was for International Education Week. We worked with the student who's in the room as well as two other students to have them tell us their stories of home. And those homes are Armenia, Iran, and Ukraine. And they are uh, lovely little stories and documentaries. Mm -hmm, kind of. mm -hmm. So the students spoke in their own language. They and, did. Yeah, and then uh, your students worked with them to provide the translations. Well, we forced them to translate their own stories uh, oh, because <laughs> we don't know any <laughs> other Farsi, Armenian, and Ukrainian yeah, speakers yeah. besides them. Yeah, and we forced yeah. them to help us with the film yeah. editing. Yeah, but they were willing. But it must be really empowering for those students, too, because they learn a little bit more about English as they're trying to tell their story and make it understandable to an English-speaking audience. Correct? Well, their English is excellent because uh, two of them are in the translation program. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> so, okay, yeah, so yeah. they are translators. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. So the community element of this uh, is enriching for the translators and for your program. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so I understand there's also a seal of biliteracy that students can achieve? They can. They can. Uh, there's uh, an organization that offers um, us an assessment that covers the four skills of language learning, so reading, writing, speaking, and listening. And once they take that test, they may qualify for what's called a global seal of biliteracy. And that is um, a designation of one, well, there are three levels of fluency, but mostly our students would, um, would achieve the first two. Um, and, but some, you know, anyone on the campus can take this. Mm -hmm. So the, there's a, a working fluency, a functional fluency, working fluency, and professional fluency. And so depending on the levels that they test at and this, in this assessment, um, they can qualify for the global seal, which is a, is a micro-credential. Wow, that's terrific. So that helps when they go out to look for a job. They, uh, you know, can present one more. Uh, yes, potentially. Qualification, yeah. yeah mm -hmm. That's terrific. Right. Yeah. Um, well, let me just jump down to Jan. Um, so Jan Stein, uh, thanks for being here. And I know that you direct the MFA program in literary translation here at Iowa. So literary translators do much more than just swap out one word for another, right? We could all just use Google Translate if it didn't have to be any more carefully done than that. But um, there are, I'm sure, critical basic elements to a translator's work that just have to be met. What, what are those? What are the things you need in order to become a good translator? Um, well. Uh, thank you, John. Uh, yeah, so I, 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 I've been the director of this program that we just learned from Aron uh, is about to go into its 50th year. I've been the director for about two months. <laughs> um, so I feel like someone who's been given the keys to a beautiful car uh -huh. and it's in the best shape it can ever be in. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, the only thing I can do is crash it. Um, <laughs> That said, this beautiful machine that we've got running um, uh, really tries to attend to all of the uh, different skills, uh, some of which we've like discussed um, already that the that our translators need to to 
function um, in uh, their particular languages. Um, but it's quite different. So like we have 14 translators graduating uh, in the spring, mm. right? Um, mm. That number is a little bit high. Usually it's closer to 10, but it's a fairly big program. And they really do come from a lot of different languages. Um, I mean, Iran would know better, but probably around, what, eight, nine languages at the moment? Yeah, probably more, right, if we start counting certificate seekers. Mm. So the environment is massively multilingual, and the uh, goals that these students have with their translation are also quite different, right? Um, so a literary translator, whatever that creature is, may have uh, certain skills that they need to get, but that's not what we're dealing with. What we're dealing with is people translating only into English, people translating both into English and into another language, um, people who want to be translators but also be uh, active in the cultural field in other ways, um, people who want to go on to PhD programs where translation is a field of study, and we have to help them acquire a basis in the scholarship of our field. Um, and so th the program is really built to, to, to accommodate all of that. I think at the, at the center of it, we have uh, our translation workshop, right? The oldest yeah. part of what we do. And it's a multilingual translation workshop, again. Um, and, and this is something, you know, I came here five years ago, and even though I was delighted to have what is essentially a dream job, I, I, I was a tiny bit skeptical about how could this possibly work? You sit in a room, and you have translators, you know, 10, 12 of them from eight different languages, how can they possibly give feedback to each other or interact? And, and it's an astonishing thing to behold. It really is like a kind of um, uh, uh, alchemy, right? The insight that you get uh, from someone who doesn't speak any of the same languages except for the translating language, so in our case, English, um, like the precision with which they can touch on the uh, literary uh, uh, quality that is most important to retain in a particular translation is really, it's, it's quite, you know, and every time you, know, you have a translator, say, from Korean, uh, say, to a translator working from German, but that sentence on line four, that metaphor, there's something about that, and I say, yes, yes, that's exactly the one I've been waiting for, you know, I've been <laughs> working on this for five days, I can't find the solution, this is exactly what's going on. And this happens sort of again and again. Um, so after years of this, I just have a lot of faith in, in, in really the environment that we've created for them to, to, to learn their fundamental skills. Mm -hmm. yeah, um. yeah, so you sort of describe this setting a little bit, but, but tell me what it's like that first week of a semester when you walk in and you do have all of these students and you're trying to explain how this will work. What, what, what is that like for everybody? Well, there's a wonderful feature of our program is that it's two years long. <laughs> so at any given year, we have, you know, sort of people who've been around for a year and are now the old hands and are ready to induct people into the new culture. Uh, we try and make sure that they meet very early. We try and make sure, we make sure that their workshops are, in fact, mixed, that we have a lot of first years and second years experienced translators and not so experienced translators, people working from a mix of languages, people working across different genres too. Um, 
and and so I think uh, the, the uh, you know that that first couple of weeks is a steep learning curve, but mm -hmm. they, they they catch up quite fast. Mm -hmm. We also try we we, we have them uh, do the translation workshops, but they also have a theory course, um, which is not just uh, sort of dry translation theory, but more general uh, introduction to translation discourse. So craft talk by working translators. Um, you know, biographies of, uh, of, of, of more famous translators, which is a field that I hope will keep growing. Um, and then the, the classics of translation theory, so that they, went, they go off to the conferences um, and meet other translators, they speak the common language, which is our, our field's um, sort of reference points. Um, and then we also have a separate course that uh, introduces them really to the ecology of world literature that, and the agents acting in that ecology and how they will be uh, positioned in that. And it's a sort of pre-professionalizing mm -hmm. course. So really from the get-go in that first semester, they, they're introduced to a lot of the different sort of facets of what they'll be doing for the next two years. There's more freedom after that, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but, but that's the sort of basis that we start from. Terrific. Well, and I know now that some of the students will be coming into the MFA program, having perhaps been part of the BA program in That's translation. So, yeah. So, Adrian, let's uh, shift the conversation to you and uh, tell us about this new program, which was it just this last year that the BA became a recognized major. Yeah. Thanks, Joan. Um, and thanks for gathering us here mm -hmm. today to uh, talk about all the exciting translated uh, translation-related things that are happening at Iowa. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I actually prepared a script because I often get really excited when people ask me about the BA in translation and like start waving my hands wildly and I wanted to stay within my time limit. Um, but I'll try to just kind of answer your question off the cuff. Um, yeah, so the BA in translation is the relatively new program, very new, just started um, uh, in August of 2022, and although it was, has been uh, prepared uh, you know, much in advance. and it's the first uh, program of its kind in the country. And so that's very exciting for us. It's the um, kind of a humanistic approach to translation. And um, I just wanted to kind of give a little backstory about how it came uh, about in terms of uh, growing out of the minor for global literacy. So um, there was a minor in global literacy in a translation in global literacy that was started by Aron Aji and Denise Filios. 2017, 2018, around then, 2017. Um, and it was wildly successful, like immediately, and had about, has about 35 to 50 enrolled minors any given year. And so growing, uh, building on the success of the minor, we have the uh, BA in translation now. And it's really um, unprecedented, like there are no other programs like this in the country, so we are really envisioning it as um, a model program, like a premier kind of training program for students, undergraduate students who are interested in pursuing studies and also careers related to translation and various other fields like um, the medical field, um, policy, nonprofit work, education, and of course literature um, being the University of Iowa being the writing university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, 
you mentioned the Writing University. We, those of us who live and work here know that for the last many years, the university, um, which has had these long recognized wonderful programs in writing, the university has really begun to claim that as, as its brand, as the Writing University. Uh, it seems as though the translation program, we certainly know the IWP's wonderful long history and the Writers' Workshop, all of these things have kind of congealed in a way that makes this new grant um, make sense to outside observers, to the people who are figuring out what is it that's special about Iowa? Why should they get a grant for a new center? And I'm, I'm assuming this is the way it works. You were able to pull together all of these very impressive uh, existing programs and then talk about what you're planning to do in the future. Um, you are now the director of the BA uh, program. Uh, was this a challenge for you uh, coming from your other roles in uh, your educational work here? That is an interesting question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think if the MFA is this beautiful new, like, uh, sort of uh, top in top condition running car, maybe the BA is like, it's got this, this prototype um, <laughs> student driver um, <laughs> sign uh, on it and kind of figuring out, you know, what to do with it because there is no blueprint for a program like this. And yeah, um, yeah I mean, I, my other role, my, my other in administrative, um, I'm sorry, my, I'm also affiliated with the classics department um, yeah. on campus. And um, I think, I've always been interested in building bridges. Um, as Aron said earlier, this translation um, uh, center and, and degree is really about building bridges. And I think that I've uh, really leaned on some of that experience uh, that I've had on campus mm -hmm. previously to, to enlist those skills to try to build coalition with other um, departments and also mm -hmm. with other uh, campus partners and community partners as well. Um, but you mentioned the University of Iowa being a writing university and maybe a destination university, and that's something um, that I think one of the things that we're hoping to um, build with the translation major uh, is, to, is to create this momentum or this sort of excitement around uh, being a destination degree, right? Mm -hmm. Being a, a place where people come to Iowa City to study translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, terrific. I'm sure, I'm sure it will work that way. And, and our last guest for this segment is Irene Lottini. And hi, so nice hi. to see you again. And um, Irene is a lecturer in the Department of French and Italian. And um, I think I'm interested in finding out from the point of view of someone who teaches in one of the language departments, how do you intersect with translation? Well, we have always included translation in our courses. Um, translation is a perfect way to improve uh, linguistic competency, cultural competency, and intercultural competency. So we have courses that include uh, translation, and Professor Cinzia Broom uh, teaches a class on transcultural texts and translations, which is an investigation of uh, contemporary uh, cultural artifacts uh, by authors and artists with different transnational and transcultural experiences. And I include a translation in a class on uh, images of modern Italy, uh, which is an overview of Italian history and culture from the country's unification in 1861 to the present. And uh, 
there is one section that is a, a discussion session of the course uh, that is mainly dedicated for uh, Italian major and minors, uh, majors and minors, and um, I always include a project, translation project, that usually it's actually an audiovisual translation project. Mm. Uh, audiovisual translation is uh, a challenging okay, branch of translation because you don't always have, you don't only have the uh, translation uh, of content from the uh, source language to the target language, but you also need to consider that there are complications. There are actually connected to uh, the multimedia nature of uh, the audiovisual text. So we have uh, been working on producing subtitles for um, videos that are not available in English. And so when you are using, when you are producing subtitles, there are several elements that you need to, con you need to consider. You know, subtitle subtitles need to be easily uh, readable, easily understandable, and uh, at the same time, sub subtitles cannot distract uh, the viewer from the image. So all those different dynamics are actually a challenge for our students, but I think the challenge in our students is actually the way to help them uh, improve their own skills yeah. and competency. Yeah. That sounds wonderfully fun. Now, do you basically work off of, of news clips or uh, maybe? Uh, our most recent project was actually um, a short video by a movie director uh, I've been in contact with, uh, Fred Porno, that is the movie director that is actually uh, calling attention of what we call the black Italy, so diversity mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Italy. And so it was an interesting text on several, several uh levels yeah yeah wow wow and so claire you're in the division and you're meeting students all the time working with students working with faculty um is this new is this uh, increased translation activity inspiring for you personally uh, absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm yeah. bilingual in french and i've mm -hmm. um kind of taken, you know, I, I met Oran early on in my tenure here, of my tenure of three years, and um, but got inspired to to do some community outreach, and mm -hmm. I'm doing um, a translation for the Inclusive Economic Development Plan for the city of Iowa City. I've started interpreting um, for a free medical mm -hmm. clinic, so I'm very excited wow, yeah. by translation and interpretation, yeah. yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, very exciting to hear about all of this. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. Uh, so I'd like to say thanks to Claire Francis and to Irene Lottini, to Adrian Rose, and to Jan Stein. Please thank our guests. Thank you. Thank you. And now we're going to uh, welcome two students in the Literary Translation Graduate Program, if Mirkul Isherwood and uh, Claire Breger-Belsky could come up to the stage, that would be great. So as they get all settled here, I'll tell you what we're going to do next. Mirkul and Claire are going to read some translations that they have worked on, they've brought with us this afternoon. So um, before we go into the reading, I'll just uh, ask you, Mirkul, could you just tell us about your background? Um, I'm actually an engineer by education, and I worked in uh, engineer for engineering companies for a while, and then I discovered translation five years ago, I think. And I, I translated short stories for a while, and then I realized that I don't have 
specific enough background and knowledge to uh, continue translating, so I enrolled into MFA. It mm -hmm. was very helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Claire, this time I go to you. So, so what's uh, your background? Yeah, I, so I have been translating since undergrad. I studied both translation and theater in undergrad and then just wanted to continue to be in a space where I could focus on translation and learning about translation. So I came here to do that and keep working like Mirgul, I think it's been just a wonderful place to be for that. So Mirkel, we'll first go to your piece. Okay. I translate from Kazakh, uh, which is a language spoken in Kazakhstan, a uh, country in Central Asia. Um, and I'm going to read the, a short story called The Black Colt, written by Bakutkul Sarmikova. Uh, she's a young female Kazakh writer uh, who writes satirical prose, uh, which tends to explore uh, the struggles of uh, the transition uh, from a traditional agricultural patriarchal Kazakh society toward uh, more modern uh, early capitalist market-driven society uh, in the last uh, three decades since the collapse of USSR. And before I start reading, I also want to just uh, quickly go over uh, some characters' names because I think they might be confusing when I will be reading. So there's Turar, a male character, youngish. Uh, then there's Jarbagul, uh, a woman, a young woman. Uh, we have Qabikia, an old man, and Sailau, who is Turar's brother. And then Qaragir, uh, which is the name of the horse, the black colt. Uh, the black colt. Okay. <laughs> Embarrassed of being deaf in one year, he worried about missing out on conversations and had a habit of nodding and giggling whenever people so much as twitched their lips, prompting some to wonder if he was soft in the head. The harsh stare of a stranger's eye made him uncomfortable, and he'd fidget and tussle his hair, sprinkled with gray strands that had crept in too early for his age. Especially when a woman came near him, Torar would begin to blink rapidly, get all red and sweaty, then turn white as a sheet, all the while grinning awkwardly and baring his tobacco-stained teeth. Some of the more brazen women in our village had taken note of this and would tease him, pinching his side as they walked by or brushing up against him with their breasts, plump and quivering like intestines filled with sour cream. In those moments, one couldn't help but feel pity for Turar. It was this Turar that my grandfather had resolved to pluck out of the wicked women's claws by introducing to Jarbagul, his wife's younger sister. He instructed my grandmother to cook the salt-cured meat left over from the winter, mounted his three-wheeled motorcycle, and drove off into town to fetch Jarbagul. Turar grew very thoughtful, and we sensed the stirring of his heart as we watched the ash at the end of his cigarette slowly grow to the length of a finger. Before long, my grandfather returned with Jarbagul, whose bucket-shaped head bobbed up and down in his sidecar as they rode along the bumpy road. This was the first time we had ever met our auntie, whose huge head, dark, rough, trowel-shaped face, and stumpy legs were a strange match with her thin pigtails, wire earrings, and lacy ruffled dress. The grin didn't leave Torar's lips until the meal was over. He blinked and nodded to every word. 
Busy romping around the front yard, we nevertheless kept an eye on the proceedings, and some of us entertained ourselves by watching Turar's every move. At one point in the afternoon, everyone streamed out of the house. My grandfather went to check on the cows. My, grandfather, my grandmother hurried to drain the curd, and the women headed home to catch a movie. They dragged along their kids, who had been playing with us out in the front yard. When evening came, Sharbagul got ready to go home. My grandfather kicked the pedal, starting the motorcycle. As they rode away, Sharbagul's twig-like pigtails slapped against her monster's back. Still grinning, Turar squeezed a cigarette between his yellow-stained teeth and announced, we are, go we are going to have a wedding. The next day, someone brought over a colt and tied him to a tree in our front yard. It was Turar's gift to my grandfather for helping him find the love of his life, Sharbagul. My grandfather, who'd been a cowherd all his life, was ecstatic about owning a horse. All of a sudden, he was bustling about, brushing the colt's mane and braiding a lucky red string into it, ordering horse tack and sackfuls of oats from town. Cows were all he'd ever known, but now, whenever he got together with other older other old men, he chatted about the care and training of horses. He began to sound like someone who owned hundreds of them. Did you make sure there's enough water? Have you checked the hobble? See to it that the mice don't chew through the oat bags. He'd insert in the middle of a conversation. By fall, he'll be old enough to settle up and take out for a ride, he said, and began counting the days. The cold was indeed a beautiful animal, and we couldn't help but stare at him in awe. Though he'd whinny when we approached and look askance at us, his nostrils flared, his ears flicking, his forelock flying in the breeze. We named him Karager. After Jarbagul visited a few more times, the preparation for the wedding began in earnest. My grandmother started beating fleece for new corpier mats for Jarbagul's dowry, and the women scoured local markets for fabric to decorate them with. Turar's family got busy sprucing up their house and repainting the windows and doors. Then, one wet summer day, while driving his ship toward the village, Turar stepped carelessly on the broken end of a downed power line and died, his body burned to a crisp. The adults who had gone to look at his body said, he was graining year to year when he passed into the great beyond. No one knew if he was beaming at the thought of his beloved Jarbagul, or grimacing in pain when the fatal charge struck. It wasn't in the cards for the 30-year-old 30, 30 Jarbagul after all to sing the bride's farewell to her family. She came by to pay her respects, whimpering quietly, as translucent tears left wet traces on her rough-hewn face. When the commotion caused by Turar's death quieted down, his brother Sailao showed up in our front yard with a rope in his hand. I've come to take the cold, Khabike, he said. He must have been preparing for this moment because his voice came out rather loud and firm. Which call? My grandfather stared at him with the look of a man whose pastures were teeming with herds of horses. His head tilted back disdainfully along with his head as he looked up at Selo. The cold is ours, 
I never heard Turar say that we, he was giving it to you, Selao said, spitting loudly to the side. The startled old man looked at the frothy spittle on the ground, then back at Selao. I'm not giving Karagir back, he said bluntly. Then I'll see you in court, Selao shot back. After that, my grandfather fell into the habit of sighing wearily whenever he stroked Karagir's mane with a red string woven into it. By then, the colt had put on some weight and turned into a shapely, long-limbed horse. When a court summons came, my grandfather started his motorcycle and rode into town, the brim of his hat bending defiantly backwards in the wind. No notes or gift deeds had been exchanged between him and the colt owner's Turar, who must have been grinning down upon Kabikia from heaven. Backed into a corner at the court hearing, my grandfather defended himself. I spared no expense in raising this colt. I bought feed, I spent time with it, I exerted myself to care for it. He was a fool when I got him, and now he's a yearling colt with a fine mane and tail. I want my expenses paid. The colt goes to Sailao and Khabike's expenses are to be tallied up and reimbursed, said the judge, bringing the gavel down with a bang. Back at home, the sullen old man tried to comfort himself by reminding us. The judge himself said to pay Habike's expenses back. Sitting at the dinner table, he drawled the words in a sing-song manner, and they did seem to cheer him up. With a court order in one hand and a rope in the other, Silo came striding into our front yard again. The brim of my grandfather's brown hat didn't rise this time. He lowered his eyes and didn't say a word. Karagir's mane and tail rustled in the wind, and his hoofs clattered on the dry, white ground as Silao led him away. Only when the sound of the hoofbeats of hoofbeats faded, my grandfather lifted his head and murmured, "If we could have taken to the ambulance next year, he would have won a prize." Soon enough, Silao showed up again, holding the same piece, piece of paper in one hand and leading Karagir by the rope with the other. My grandfather's head tilted up as he stared at him in astonishment. Sailau proceeded to remove four bags of feed from the colt's back and, raising a cloud of dust, dropped them by the door. These are for your material expenses, and the rest is here, he said as he handed my grandfather a carefully sealed envelope retrieved from his shirt pocket. Then he walked away with the unburdened Karagir. When the old man's brown head began convulsing, as he abruptly stood up, we thought he'd take off in a sprint after Sailao, lash him with a whip, jump on Haragir, and gallop away across the barren steppe. But we were wrong. He went over to his wife, whose white headscarf blended with the gray smoke from the outdoor cook stove where she was busying herself, pushed her away, and threw Sailao's envelope onto the glowing dung embers. He then walked over to the bags with feed, and after gazing at them thoughtfully for a moment, said, take them to the cow shed. Then he went into the house. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, 
beautiful. Thank you very, very much. And uh, Claire, tell us what you're going to be reading. So I translate from both Yiddish and Spanish, but as my Yiddish translations are relatively piecemeal and fragmentary at the moment, I will be reading a longer Spanish, a longer poem translated from Spanish. It's by an Argentinian poet named Perla Rotzeit, and it comes from a book that she published in 1978. Here lies the water, Ophelia. One. Nothing penetrated the mysterious, white, transcended dream state. Two, immobile, immovable, my ecstatic angels, brothers of madness. Three, I look for my replica, an other that would be me with my name, and no subterfuge moves me. Four, such avarice. Five, who are you, I ask myself, but a piece of yourself separate from yourself, immobile, immovable, in continuous displacement, linked, always identical. Six, but what do they need from me? Distances are measured with the eyes, and they hit. Seven, my enraptured angels, brothers of madness, feeling the world in its beginnings. Eight, nothing. Nine. The angel of nostalgia said, every being can be saved. The angel of nostalgia said, preserved fate mirrors shame. The angel of nostalgia said, there is nothing more than the word nothing, and I who traverses it. 10. My enraptured angels diffused bodies, brothers of madness seeping into reality, indistinguishable from strangeness. 11. Mysterious, white, transcended, dream state. 12. I take my share of time. I enter into it and exist. I exist during my share of time. It's simple. The limit is everything. But if before that, I could have known unavailability. But no, everything was interchangeable, modifiable. How then could it have happened if it didn't even happen for me? 13, I have nothing to do with this world that is nothing, I said with a strangeness that resembled pain. The world is that which pretends. I am that which pretends. So it should be when the limit is everything. 14, nostalgically I unfold immobile chance and extract, it seems that I dream, waves of flowers towards infinity. Ophelia, I hear that I call myself, and the air says nothing. 15, I understood while I submerged myself that harmony was in the mirrors, undulating waves, how every comparison reduced my power and the dialogue my identity. Because my inner voices make themselves trophies, simple plans, and exposed to other eyes that extract my attributes, reducing me or augmenting me, modified the soul in vain attempts at truth and separated me from myself. 16, and while I submerged myself, I am in my element, water, flowers, air, breath, sweet memory of the name. I heard that I named myself. 17, of course, while I looked at myself reflected in the waves, head covered with flowers, I wanted to increase myself exaggerate myself. 
My intense confusion fulfilled its agreement. It was a challenge. I know. Losing myself in the waves, I left a sea of tears and shame. 18. Strange, turbulent intoxication, preserved destiny mirrors shame. 19. If you already know, my love, there is a scale that the sounds of being climb. I recognize them. They are called exaltation, timid blush of the loss. And from there they descend also in continuous monologue better served to madness. There is no other form of sweetening the torment than this wise walking toward the waves and their internal world, pleasing lichens, destinies run aground, hard rock. 20. I make use of my feet, my hands, my eyes. I check myself. I can't, though, use my soul, since it has fractured the laugh that contained it. Neither can I, to return to being the adolescent breeze of love, stop worrying. In some dead point of my mind, your image appears in a winged skull turning to destiny. 21. Do you arrange my fate? Do you urge me? Do you threaten me? My actions don't come from me. I fulfill them inexorably in closed circles without time towards the waves. But no, your winged skull of madness, wise fantasy, oracle, concentration of love and justice that calls up the paternal image with its decisive dictation, suffering, intentioned revelation, diabolical. You also do not belong to you. My love, my love, I am sorry for myself. 22. Others unfold in order with kings, pawns, bishops, and queens and castles and knights that says nothing to my light. And I fall blind in their relentless game. They provoke me, extract my volume. They empty me. To not be embarrassed and to be able to contain myself and compliment myself, to not be guilty, I mean to say to not be witness. I cover the fate of wet fantasy that returns me, forgotten by the world, to the warm breast internal of my element. 23. Sleeping angels, flatteries, hard rock, arrows of cathedral, massacre, transparent lichens, circumstantial harmony, floating eyes. 24. I'm here, implicated witness to deaths and killings. 25, Rue, Bougainvillea, Rosemary, Fennel, Columbine, Violets, Acanthus, Daisies. Even knowing the names, helplessness fills me. But other times I practice a continuity and at the same time, imperceptibly, there is a displacement. It's strange, isn't it? There's a displacement, and then the other is I like sterile demand. And my pain? And my madness? Does nothing begin and end in me? 26. I am pursued by corals and their red sirens and their songs, impotent gods, dead tears, also pursuing me. Numerical expanses of sand, earth, and wind in whirlpools, furious, suffocating. I'm hot and cold at the same time. The words scream to me. 
icy, icy, or cold, or death rattle, or delirium. I'm pursued by your name and your father's name that is the same and different. I'm pursued by the kingdom of ambition, its hiding place, its mask, its crime, its convenient alliance, its vermin. And because you are me, I am pursued and reached by your madness. AD 1596. Wow, well, I wish we had a little time to, to you know, delve into what this took out of each of you to uh, create these versions, these English language versions of uh, the original work. But um, from what I could hear, it was brilliant and insightful work. And uh, congratulations. I know you're both in the MFA program here, and, and I'm sure you have great futures ahead of you. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Claire Breger-Belsky was the second reader there, and our first reader was Mirkel Isherwood. Thank you so very much. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so now, as uh, we go into the last portion of the program, we're going to be talking a little bit about bilingual and heritage language programs. And uh, I'd like to ask our guests to come on up to the stage. So joining us are Belen Hernando Llorens, Assistant Professor in the College of Education here at the University of Iowa, just next to me. Thanks for being here, Belen. And uh, next to her is uh, Claudia Pozzobon Potras, visiting assistant professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese here at the University of Iowa. Thank you. And uh, at the far end, we have Christine Shea, associate professor in the Department of Spanish and Portuguese here at the UI. So I'll start with you, Belen. You're an assistant professor in the UI College of Education. And I understand that you're going to be instrumental in the outreach portion of this NRC grant to create the new Center on Translation and Global Literacy. Uh, what will you be doing to connect UI resources with uh, communities outside of our campus? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for organizing this and, and for the invitation. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm going to be with um, uh, Sorakim, one of our graduate students, you know, coordinating the workshops with uh, the different actors that Palm some, somehow pointed before local um, world language teachers, um, as well as heritage or bilingual, multilingual um, students within our community. Um, and I mean, I think one of the, the key aspects I find, you know, in, in, in the work that we are trying to do with these communities is actually uh, trying to translate, you know, all these uh, conversations that we are having about this theme, translation to the reality of what is the K-12 um, multilingual world, you know, of and, and at the same time, you know, the, the reality of um, the U.S. as a multilingual country, specifically as it relates to to Spanish, you know. And, and I think there is a really powerful... A potential, you know, in somehow, you know, bring, bringing back, you know, as Pam was saying, translation after the, <clears throat> you know, this communicative approach, you know, that seems um, a, to be kind of the, the core pedagogical uh, framework that grants most, sorry, 
<coughs> most of our classes now um, um, has put aside translation as a practice and you know connected as Pam was saying with this passe practice of um, translating old texts you know and these grammar based approaches um, however you know I, I really see that there is a really powerful transformational and critical poten potential of, of, of um, a translation as a pedagogical tool in these classrooms. And we have been talking about translation, but talking you know, about languages abounded languages, many of them colonial languages. That is how traditionally you know, we tend to talk about uh, translation. However, the, the, the multilingual reality of what it means to be Latinx bilingual, again, specifically around the Spanish in the US, is that you know, there are multiple varieties of Spanish. And our students come to, to our classroom to both the world language or the heritage Spanish or the bilingual classroom with uh, language varieties that are you know, different to the standard, the academic, you know, whatever term we want to name it, you know, and they come loaded, you know, they come loaded with racial linguistics, you know, uh, ideologies about what it means to speak a language, what it means to be a proficient speaker or not, you know. Mm -hmm. So I really think, you know, that um, there is a potential, you know, in bringing, uh, you know, uh, students to reflect critically, you know, on the varieties, you know, that they bring to our classroom, not within the right, wrong kind of framework that is how traditionally these students are perceived, mm -hmm. but more from the perspective of, you know, coloniality and postcoloniality, you know, around what it means to be a speaker in the borderlands, right? So in this sense, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, you know, in this transgressive and pre- um, controversial uh, translation of El Quixote, you know, uh, that was written, you know, in Spanglish. But what a wonderful activity to bring, you know, with and to teach our um, world language, our heritage uh, teachers and our bilingual teachers, you know, you know, have the students to bring their linguistic varieties, to have them reflect, you know, why it, why it is, you know, that this, you know, uh, language and, and the, the way you speak is perceived as wrong, bad, pocho, you know, whatever the, the, the tax we want to put and haven't actually engaged in this practice of, of translation in other varieties, many of them with more prestige, again, as standard academic varieties, and have them not only engage in the practice of translation, but also in the practice of reflection, you know, of their own language, of the status of the rankings, you know, within mm -hmm. languages and um, the you know, how historical we have come up to perceive these languages as less than compared to others. So again, you know, I think um, again in this workshop uh, that we are working and bringing, you know, um, within the community, I think there is not just um, a need and, and, and they're going to have an important play in providing these wonderful tools, you know, as um, Irene was pointing that I thought it was a really wonderful idea, you know, of how much um, techniques in the regular classroom we can bring, but also as a political critical tool, you know, specifically for these multilingual students that are part of um, our classrooms, okay? So, so I just wanted to 
to somehow highlight that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so let me go now to the two people on the panel who are part of the uh, Department of Spanish and Portuguese and um, bring you into the conversation here. Uh, just before we started tonight, I had a brief minute to talk with Belen and with Claudia, and I asked uh, what to me was a very basic and probably uninformed question. What do we mean when we say heritage language? It wasn't a, a term I'd been familiar with before. And um, uh, can you, uh, Claudia, tell us a little bit about how you see uh, what that refers to? Um, yeah, so when we talk about a heritage speaker, which we, I think we mentioned before, is not a term that's accepted widely. Um, a heritage language or a heritage speaker is a person who grows up in a household that speaks a language that is not the dominant language of society. Mm -hmm. And basically they usually learn it orally, so they they understand perfectly, they can communicate orally, but usually their schooling is in the dominant language mm -hmm. of society, whether mm -hmm. it's you know, English in the US or Spanish in Spain or, right. yeah. Right, and so some of these students may not feel comfortable uh, revealing very much about the fact that they know a, a casually or in a home environment, their uh, heritage language or the, the language of the home may not feel that that uh, they should show that part of themselves too openly when they're in an English language environment because perhaps it reveals something about social status or uh, they don't feel that they, they know how to speak colloquially but maybe wouldn't get it right when it comes to a test, correct? Right, but one of the beauty of working with heritage speakers is that the, there's so many differences. Like each of them, their language is so unique, and some of them are extremely proud of being bicultural and bilingual, while like there's like a huge pendulum, let's mm -hmm. say. Some others have felt that they have to hide the fact that they're bilingual, either because of their suffered discrimination or because they felt they were safer adopting a completely, you know, like let's say Anglo or English speaking mm -hmm. persona. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in that spectrum, we can find a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Christine, um, I understand that you are working with Aaron and with Claire. Uh, on a graduate course focused on linguistic justice. What, uh, what is that all about? Um, well, we are working together on a course that was actually a grant through the Oberman Center at the University of Iowa. And it's a graduate level course that we're going to be teaching next fall. And the idea of the course is to, in, it's, um, the goal of the course is community engagement. And the theme of our course is uh, language justice. So we, we're sort of thinking about it right now, kind of writ large. We are <laughs> thinking about what it means to live in a community where multiple languages are spoken, but not necessarily always recognized. Yeah. And this comes back to what Aaron mentioned at the beginning of the conversation about these uh, sort of invisible Iowans, where people tend to think of Iowa as white, as Christian, as English speaking. Um, and as a matter of fact, that's not true. <laughs> it's not true. Um, there are a lot of Iowans who are not native English speakers, or if 
If so, maybe one generation removed from a language other than English. So part of our goal with this course is to work with graduate students who in turn will work with uh, members of, of the community here in Iowa City, but also hopefully beyond Iowa City, mm -hmm. to um, think about issues related to um, justice in terms of people who don't speak English as a native language mm -hmm. and what that means in terms of access to resources, in terms of access to healthcare, uh, legal resources. So that's um, that's the course yeah. <laughs> that we are we're going to be teaching that next fall for the first time. Yeah, and we're hoping to draw graduate students from pretty much anybody who's interested in language and justice, multilingualism. Mm -hmm. So yes, yeah, uh, these are kind of difficult times for uh, education around the country. Many challenges to what many people thought were standard teaching subjects uh, are being made ar around the country. And politically, uh, we're, we're in a very um, intense time in the country. Um, from the College of Education point of view, do you just kind of keep, keep moving ahead, even though there is a lot of noise um, uh, regarding what should and should not be done with um, teaching about culture, and teaching about race, teaching about difference? And you don't have to speak for the whole college, but if you'd like to just yeah. say what you yeah. think. I mean, I think historically challenges to, to critical work comes in many phases, shapes, you know, it just changes in different times and periods. Uh, so, um, I mean, the reality is that being a critical educator where you really take seriously, you know, this thing of, 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 of bringing issues of race, class, gender into the classroom has never been an easy job, yeah. you know? Uh, and if someone thinks that, is, <laughs> you just need to look historically what has been. So, so again, I mean, it's for, again, for people who has been in this profession for a long time, it's just a new struggle. I mean, there are, you know, new, new, new techniques. I mean, uh, new, new practices, new, new uh, themes that want to be uh, taught. You know, because mm -hmm. time changes. Mm -hmm. But that the reality is that it has never been been easy. You know, so that's why it's so important to have uh, teacher education programs who can really provide teachers with uh, not only the best tools about how to best teach, you know, but also mm -hmm. some, sometimes, you know, with resilience, I would say, I always find that kind of my best uh, students, uh, once they find the re face the reality of the public school system, their third year, they quit, you know, oh, it's not, a, and, you know, so I really feel that sometimes we really need to do a better job in terms of um, making, you know, it's like, you know, this is not easy, so how can we not only teach you to get into the profession, but how can we also keep you, you know, because this is um, a struggle, you know, and this mm -hmm. is a really hard job, as you are saying, mm -hmm. not just in terms of what happens in the classroom in daily basis, you know, but all these issues about what do I bring into my curriculum? Am I going to have parents protesting? Am I going to... So so it's not easy to mm -hmm. really bring a seriously... Um, 
teaching as a political practice, even though it's a political practice, even though we want it to be political, <laughs> it is the nature of what education is about. Sure, sure. Well, and in Spanish and Portuguese, you know, you are teaching students who are going to go out into the world in various careers and, and whatever, and you, I'm sure, deal with the same kinds of questions. What is relevant to teaching this topic? Um, do, you, do either of you have anything you want to say regarding um, the, this student preparation? I think one thing that I would like to emphasize, and this is something that has uh, sort of threaded its way through all of our conversations this evening, is this idea of what is bilingual. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge thing. <laughs> I'm not going to resolve it right now. But the idea that the bilingual is perfect in two languages is something that mm -hmm. you still hear. You still hear that. And you still hear that somebody who's bilingual has to be able to translate from one language into another, everything, perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I think that has changed, and schools of education are no longer teaching teachers that that is what bilingualism is. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, for children who, uh, children around the world, and it's probably most of the children in the world who grow up in communities that are bilingual, mm -hmm. where they move between two languages, say maybe at home they speak one, but they go out on the street and they're hearing another one. Or maybe they go to school and they have to be schooled through a standard language. Mm -hmm. That's maybe not their dialect, or maybe it's something completely different. Mm -hmm. If you think of countries like Nigeria, countries like India, yeah. where the children speak a language at home, but are educated through English. So I think one thing that is has started to change in terms of the perspective that people have on bilingualism is that you don't have, say, so to speak, English over here and Spanish over here. Mm -hmm. You don't. You have language. And this is very relevant to translation, for example, because I think for a lot of bilinguals, you might not even be aware that you're moving from one language to another. It's just sort of fluid. And I'm thinking particularly for languages that are very similar, but even for languages that aren't. If you grow up in a community where two languages are used, most people are bilingual, you move between them. And this idea that people have here in the United States of, and um, I'm from Canada, and there are English-speaking Canadians who have this idea as well, that my language stops here and the other language starts there. That is not the way bilingualism works. It really is not. And I think um, people have started to understand that. Teachers have definitely understood that. The literature is addressing uh, this issue of what it means to be bilingual, what it means to be multilingual. The heritage speakers, uh, speakers that Claudia works with in our department live that. That is, that is what they live. And you constantly hear heritage speakers in our department commenting on how they're, oh, my Spanish is so bad, but so is my English. I also don't speak English very well. <laughs> and the, this, is, this is what it means to be bilingual. Your English, if you are a bilingual speaker, your English will never be the same as a monolingual, whatever that means. Yeah. Your Spanish will never be the same as a monolingual speaker of Spanish, whatever you want that to mean. You're bilingual. That is something else, and that is something extremely special. Mm -hmm. So I think that this grant provides a really good opportunity to think about what we are translating. What does it mean to translate for different types of populations and across different languages and in different contexts? Yeah. And I think it really, it's something very, uh, very positive. And I think Iowa is also very well positioned for that because we also have faculty in the College of Ed. We have faculty in psychology and linguistics who think about the more sort of structural side or the psycholinguistic side of bilingualism. And then we also have people who work on the more social side of bilingualism. And we have a wonderful world of translators as well. So we have a lot of sort of different pieces that come together in a very 
very positive way that yeah. doesn't happen at a lot of other universities, honestly. So yeah. there's my plug, but it's true. <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure we could say anything else that would wrap up this uh, discussion any better. Uh, so gosh, I want to say thank you so much, uh, Belen and Claudia and Christine for being with us and for all of our earlier guests as well. It's a wonderful conversation. And please just stay here while I say my goodbyes and then we'll have a uh, hand at the end. So I hope everyone will mark your calendars for the next World Canvas, which will be on February 2nd. It'll be at the Stanley Museum of Art, and uh, we'll get the inside scoop on the world-famous UI art collection and the museum's vision for serving the state and art lovers everywhere. Uh, come early or stay late, because the collection will be open to visitors on either side of our show. And you can find information about all past and future World Canvas programming on the International Programs website, which is international. So thank you all, and for international programs, I'm Joan Kerr. See you next time. <laughs>